Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. When Peter Pomerantsev was working as a documentary producer in Russia, he observed how Vladimir Putin employed propaganda to spread such deep doubt and division that meaningful political debate became impossible. Since then, he's written two books on the subject, and now he's a senior fellow at the Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and co-director of ARENA, a research project that explores how media can reach polarized and antagonistic audiences using insights from on-the-ground research in countries including Ukraine, Italy, Hungary, Germany, and Sweden. I spoke to him on Tuesday, February 15, 2022, about his observations and the role of the dynamics in the information ecosystem in the current conflict on the Ukraine-Russia border. My name is Peter Pomerantsev. I am currently a senior fellow at Johns Hopkins University, where I co-direct a research initiative called ARENA, which is all about disinformation and propaganda and the digital age and but also what we do about it it's not just about you know asking questions it's also about thinking about and experimenting with solutions I, I really write books I'm, I'm kind of sort of a not really a, a social scientist I'm, I'm my background is actually in the humanities and I write sort of what I hope are fun narrative non-fiction books which often are about propaganda but really about propaganda and people and propaganda and art and those sorts of questions. Well, the first one was called, nothing is true and everything is possible. It was about Russia. The second one is called, this is not propaganda and that's about the whole world. And I'm working on a book about the second world war because there aren't enough of those. You've been studying Russian propaganda, disinformation, information warfare since uh, well before it was cool. I think it, it kind of became really cool in this country, uh, maybe in 2016 and after. What have you observed in this particular conflict with Ukraine and Russia at this moment that you regard as new? Most of what Russia is doing is, is actually quite familiar. Uh, there might be new narrative lines, but, but it's very similar to what they did in 2008 around Georgia and 2014. Very much sort of like moving your soldiers into position while saying you only want peace and that Putin is the peacemaker and it's the awful West with its aggressions and the genocidal Georgians and Ukrainians and they're to blame. Um, and then looking for kind of like false flag excuses to invade. And part of that is obviously an informational component. So, so that's kind of, I don't see, maybe I'm missing something. I don't see anything spectacularly new. I see them pretty much working through a template that was very successful for them in the past. Um, you could say they, you could say they're bluffing. Uh, and moving the troops is to get attention. But again, that's a very old playbook as well. You know, you know look at Kim Jong-un or look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. Again, that's a very classic brinksmanship tactic. So none of those, I would say, are kind of spectacularly new. That doesn't make it, that doesn't make them undangerous because they worked very well for Russia in 2008 and 14. So, you know, if it's worked well, if you're used to the West being in complete disarray, if you're used to getting away with these pseudo-masked, ambiguous operations, and Germany and France do nothing, basically, then, then, then you're pretty spoiled. You know, you, you, you've, you haven't had any limits set on your behavior. So why wouldn't they try it again? The real change is what, is what the US and UK are up to. 
So clearly in 2008, 2014, we knew what the Russians were up to and didn't say anything. And we let this ambiguity and this murk sort of flourish. And that is an environment that Putin likes. He likes to be in this ambiguous space. We can't really tell what's going on. And that makes it very hard to sort of, you know, for, for NATO and allies to get their act together. They're very slow bureaucracies. They have something called an OODA loop, which is kind of the information analysis loop. And if there's any confusion in it, that, you know, that allows an Italy or a Hungary to go, well, we don't really know who's at fault in this war. And, you know, that sounds ridiculous to us. But in the world of bureaucracy, you know, any kind of sort of like frazzling of that process gives the Kremlin a chance to act. They go in, then, you know, usually a French president goes and throws themselves at Putin's feet. And he says, okay, I'll pull my forces back. And and the sanctions are late and they're vague and it's all over and, and et cetera, et cetera. So this time the Americans and the Brits have decided, no, we're not letting you get away with that. We're switching on all the lights. We're going to scream to high heavens about what you might be about to do. Which, you know, it's like, it's like somebody stalking you and following you down the street and keeps on saying, I'm not calling you, I'm not following you. And you start screaming, you know, this guy's going to attack me, this guy's going to rape me. And you start screaming about it. And you look to kind of deter them that way. I mean, it might not work. Putin might not care, but it's raised the costs. It's made clear that, you know, we've been, there's going to be sanctions, which is a thing he really cares about. And obviously, we've been given the Ukrainians some weapons. I mean, he can still probably defeat the Ukrainians quite fast. But again, it's all about raising the costs and getting rid of ambiguity. And, and then it's kind of his choice. Does he still want to be, you know, this overtly aggressive leader or, or, or is he going to do something else? So that's not unwise, you know, and I think it's probably the first time we've decided to take the initiative. There are, however, some side negative effects of that. The primary one being what people in Ukraine feel. <laughs> They're the ones we're meant to be helping. So there, on the one hand, again, their attitudes are different, but I talk to officials a lot and I talk to various kind of analysts and think tankers and journalists and writers, and it's ambiguous. On the one hand, obviously, they're very glad that people care and they're very glad for the support and they're very glad of the sanctions threats. On the other hand, we have multiple conflicts happening at the same time. There's also an economic warfare and a political warfare dimension to this. In a way, our reaction is also helping as a side negative effect to sort of bury the Ukrainians alive. Their sea is cut off by the Russians, their air has been cut off due to panic, well not panic, due to concern from the from the uh, insurers of airplanes and so on and so forth. Plus their you know, economics is hit. And we don't really think about that. We haven't really thought about you know, the full spectrum consequences of what we do. So it's kind of like we've started to get involved in these kind of much more contemporary forms of of competition where like kinetic conflict and political warfare and economic warfare are all happening at the same time. So we started to get involved in that, but we, we haven't really learned how to play this game properly yet. Uh, the Russians and the Chinese do it all the time. You know, they're doing army stuff, they're doing their troll farms, they're doing their TV channels, you know, and they're thinking about different audiences. So already Putin is pivoting, you know, uh, ha, 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 the West have cried foul, ha, ha, ha. You know, they said it's war. We never said it was war. And at the same time, there's a really strong campaign from all sorts of forces in Ukraine saying, oh, look, it's the Westerners who are damaging your economy, not us. You know, and that's being pushed at all sorts of levels by all sorts of players. That's happening all the time. And we're just kind of slow and clunky. And we don't have the institutional capability to respond to that. And we don't really have the strategic foresight to think about that. We kind of, 
we do some press briefings and then we run away and then we think that's enough and it's not. Now, I'm not at all advocating before my, what I say gets taken out of context. Uh, I'm not at all advertise, advocating that we should have troll farms and RT and all this, all this like, you know, ugly, ugly stuff that the Russians or the Chinese have. But we do need to think about what is the diplomatic, democratic version of that. So it means thinking about it, what is public diplomacy for the 21st century? What is our long-term dialogue that we're trying to have with the Russian people about Russia's role in the world? What is our communication to specific audiences in Ukraine to explain what we're doing? You know, all that needs to be happening. It really means having a kind of communication statecraft policy and institutional capacity for the 21st century. We haven't started thinking that through. We really haven't. That's a really understandable, you know, and a healthy sort of reaction going, isn't that like a ministry information? That's Orwellian. And I completely get that. And we certainly don't want to do what the Russians or Chinese are doing. And neither do we need to do that, frankly. But we do need to be thinking about this because we just live. This is just the world we live in. The Russians and the Chinese will be dialing up, dialing down, you know, swiveling, turning left, turning right. You know, the Chinese will do this much and already do this in the South China Sea all the time. And we just we just have to understand this is this is the 21st century. And we're a little bit stuck in the 20th century thinking that, like, you know, you can solve the soil with some military muscle and a couple of sanctions. And it's not. It is about communication. It is about perception. It is about dialogue. And we need to just, just like, you know, step up to the plate a little bit. Are there any particular investments that you have seen the West made into entities like I'm thinking about the State Department's Global Engagement Center or similar types of activities in, in the UK that have been tasked with dealing with countering disinformation and countering state propaganda. Are there any particular activities like that that you think have made any impact in this current situation? I think that there might be individual good projects, you know, for what I, for all I know. There might be individual, you know, the State Department has sometimes put out statements saying, look, these are, talking about various websites in, across the world saying, look, these are Russian assets. They're not independent websites. These are funded and controlled by the Russian state. That, that's, that can be useful. There may have been good stuff. At least, I don't know. I'm not, I mean, really a lot of the focus of the Global Engagement Center was much more around the Middle East. But overall, it looks, I don't know. I'm not an expert on the Middle East. But if that's not a strategy. You know, those little sort of, there might be individual good projects and, and that's great. You know, we're, we're talking about something which is stable, which is integrated and, and, and which is strategic. That clearly hasn't happened. I mean, in the Cold War, that did exist. Uh, you know, there was a real coordination, really from, you know, from the presidential administration, thinking about information right from the top through every level of governance, government. So I don't see anything strategic. I don't see any kind of long-term planning. I don't see any coordinated institutional capacity. I mean, usually there are really brilliant people working in the GEC, but usually the stories that you hear coming out of that is interagency conflict. The Pentagon wants the money, they take it away from the GEC. The GEC wants to do something, but they can't do anything fast because, you know, uh, higher ups in the State Department don't let them. I mean, there's nobody, I think, in the NSC thinking about this. Uh, from what I can tell, they've got people thinking about cyber and internet regulation, which is related to this, but kind of apart. And then you have the China people, the Russia people, who's thinking about, you know, information statecraft as a day-to-day -day reality of what we do. I don't think anybody's doing that. If, if I, I mean, I certainly haven't found anyone who, who does that. I've only got to DC a couple of months ago. Maybe I haven't looked hard enough. I don't see any kind of even think tank papers about this. So I don't think so. And I think 
look, even before we get to the institutions bit, there's kind of the values bit, because it can't be like the Russian one. It can't, I'm not, again, I want to repeat, I am not saying we should do what the Russians do. I'm saying, what is the democratic version of this? One of the things that I'm always interested in with regard to that question is, you know, what are the tactics that are okay, right? Um, in, in the context of an information war, are those tactics different in a kind of hot context when you're actually in a real conflict, a kinetic conflict versus where we're at at the moment, perhaps in this particular moment where, you know, it's a kind of wait and see, and there's, there's a, you know, brinksmanship and cat and mouse kind of going on, you know, do, do those tactics change or shift depending on the circumstances? Uh, what's, what's allowable? What's okay? So let's talk about like stuff, which is obviously kinetic. That's something different. I think there are psyops which are done by the military and which have been done. And I'm sure they are done. I'm sure the Pentagon do information operations when they need to take Mosul. I'm sure there was a million and one information operations to undermine credit, you know, trust in ISIS. And I think that's a completely legitimate function of war. So that's that's it. Look, that's as old as the Trojan horse. That's and the pen, let you know, let the army guys do that. I, I think if the that's always been legitimate because if you can save lives through a deception operation, then do the deception operation. I don't think that's even like a question. You know, if you can take us, if you can take an ISIS city without bombing the population through a deception operation, do it. I don't think that's even a a question. Sadly, we didn't, and you know, thousands of people perished in this. I don't think that's even discussable. What Russia has been very good at doing is blurring the lines between war and peace. You know, we're in this political warfare space, this endless phase zero operations. That's not the Pentagon space, and we can't let that space be securitized. Because that means we just live in this kind of very Russian world where everything is endless manipulation. So what does it mean? It means, firstly, you know, shoring up the information space. So often providing more good media and good information and trusted sources. If the Russian, you know, thing is to divide and spread confusion, we have to think about how you do the opposite of that. So talking about the values game, I think there's a very, very different set of aims there. But it's very simple stuff as well. And it's not just communication in the sense of messaging. It's also like, you know, we're doing this, okay, we're being very strong to Russia. You know, we're saying, look, we see what you're doing. We're going to put sanctions on you. But then we also say and do, look, in any kind of economic warfare you do against Ukraine, we've got the Ukrainians back to, we're going to defend the Krivnia. You try that stuff, we're going to, you know, we're actually backing the Ukrainians on that as well. The Ukrainians feel a little bit like, they're like, we get the military operation. Obviously, they're very concerned about that. But they're like, but there is like an economic warfare thing going on as well, and they need support for that. And I understand their point of view. So it's just about saying we get all we get all those angles. It's also about talking to the Ukrainian people, saying, look, this is our strategy. This is why we're doing it. You know, as we have done to the Western press, we haven't been talking to the Ukrainian people very much, and talking to them and saying, and and yes, there's going to be some consequences, but this is why we're doing it. It also means from the Ukrainian side, it's not just us. I mean, the Ukrainians have got this delicate balancing act. They've got to be, I mean, I bloody well hope that their military is firming up the border, but they don't want to tell the Russians what they're doing, you know, so they're playing it calm. I assume taking, you know, all the reasonable steps that any military would if you have a huge army on your border, but they've got to do it in a way that keeps the country calm. And that's a balance to them. I think, I think they're actually responding now. I think from yesterday, their military guys started giving a lot more presentations saying, don't worry, you know, we are obviously we are thinking of all eventualities. So look, that's not what militaries want to do. Militaries want to like keep their sort of like activities of defense very, very secret in a way. But again, you know, it just means a lot of pub a lot more public engagement 
also for institutions that would usually prefer not doing that because they're military and, and special services. Look, it just means doing it all the time, at all levels. The values piece is very important, but also having the institutional capacity to do this. At the moment, it might be left to like a poor press spokesman in an embassy. That's not enough. You know, that really is not enough. It sounds to me like one of the one of the key things you think is necessary is, is a kind of fidelity to the truth. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, I think I think that that kind of even goes without without. Um, Does it? Uh, Does that it without saying simply because, like you know, cr- credibility is important for us, while it isn't for the Russians. Russians have long said we're not. I mean, there are like some forces in the U.S. They've long gone for like sod credibility because we have we do we're still different. We credibility is still important for us. But 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 a lot of this isn't about truth or non-truth. A lot of this is about reassurance and understanding and listening and creating context where facts matter. I mean, look, we are in an ambiguous space. We don't know if Russia will invade. Um, we are in kind of a very fluid context. So it's about it's about communication. It's about trust. It's about reassurance. It's about about thinking through the consequences of what you say and do. And also, this is actually not just the responsibility of the government. There's also a big responsibility for media. And, you know, some of the clickbaity headlines were probably unhelpful. You know, Jake Sullivan says, we have information the Russians can invade on the 16th, becomes the Russians are invading on the 16th. There's a clickbait seduction, which is understandable because newspapers need to sell ad revenue. But I think journalists have to understand that they are they're not mirrors to this situation. They're not just reflecting and commenting on what's going on. They are the thing through which action happens. If we are in a war of information and perception and nerves and emotions, then the way you talk about it is key. And look, we know this from ISIS. You know, there's always this problem. If we report on ISIS's horrible crimes, are we making ISIS stronger? And we had it with Trump. Every time we report on Trump in a certain way, do we make him stronger? So we have to be very careful that the way we res- we report doesn't actually strengthen what the Russians or, or what the Americans are doing. So there's a lot of responsibility for journalists to have as well. It's just we're all actors now in this, in these information dramas where, where we're actually we 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 won't want to think we're in the audience and observing, but we're not, or we're critics sitting on the edge observing and writing our articles. We're not. We're actually on the stage. Every journalist is part of the action. Every time you tweet something or you write something, that actually contributes to the process. And there's a lot of self-examination that needs to happen as well. And look, we've got it wrong over and over again. I mean, you know, there's a strong case to make that the way Trump or ISIS were reported on was was the wrong way. Would you take those ideas to include the technology platforms as well? Um, and how do you think about them in this moment? So at the moment, things are really being driven, not just by them, frankly. I mean, at the moment, if 2014 and 2016 were very social media driven, I think at the moment we're kind of in our future presentation. And it's really being driven so much by the big players, by what Putin says and Macron says. And Macron says something about Finlandization on a play that's misreported. We get this huge kind of like really very, very few Ukrainian, a very distressing agenda that France is pushing us 
into surrendering sovereignty. I mean, Finlandization in the Cold War meant the, the Soviets had a veto over ministerial posts in Finland. I mean, to Finlandize Ukraine is to suggest that the Kremlin will decide who is the Minister of Interior and the minister uh, at the head of the Secret Service. So it's a veto on government positions. I mean, did Macron just say that? No, he didn't say that. But it's gone into this cycle straight away. But that's really, that's not social media campaigns, really. That's really like mm -hmm. heads of state making statements and somewhere between them saying something and it being a headline on the news, something has slightly gone wrong. Um, so so we can't just blame this on bots and trolls, I'm afraid. It's, this is... Yeah, and I'm not, and I'm not yeah. suggesting we can. Yeah. That's that's kind of not what I meant. I was thinking more about you know either the, the the broader incentives on the platforms that are shaping the way those media uh, who you just said are in fact actors, the way they are behaving, you know, the extent to which you kind of you know think about that as as part of the context, um, and then you know I would just add you know we have seen some of the social media platforms in recent conflicts in the world, and I'm thinking particularly of Israel and Palestine go so far as to set up special operations centers um, for how to deal with disinformation in a time of conflict, you know, and or uh, very polarizing comments from either side, right? What to do about that type of thing. Um, so as to potentially limit, you know, incitement to violence. Um, I, I don't know if you, if you think any of those types of things are or may be necessary. I mean, so what we've just had, if you're, if you're tracking the latest in the Russian propaganda, so they've now turned on the sort of Ukrainians are committing genocide in eastern Ukraine against ethnic Russians. And I don't know if you just saw the, the conversation between Putin and Schultz, where Schultz, the, the Chancellor of Germany, actually pushed back against Putin, unlike Macron. So Putin always likes to say NATO, evil, Yugoslavia, you know, um, and NATO invaded Serbia. And Macron stood there and took that. And Schultz push pushed back. He said, actually, intervention in Yugoslavia was about stopping Milosevic's mass murder, to which Putin replied, oh, we think what Ukraine is doing in, in the east of the country is mass murder, which is kind of, that's actually very scary. If Putin is saying that, that's a real signal that there might be some very, very hot conflicts ahead. And Russian commentators on TV are also saying that, very senior ones are also saying that. So that is using the language of genocide in order to probably uh, make possible an excuse for invasion. We saw that happen in Georgia in 2008. The Russians started screaming, the Georgians are committing a genocide against the Ossetians, we have to intervene. Kind of parroting the language around Rwanda or around Kosovo. So I wonder if that, that there is a sort of responsibility there for platforms. If that, you know, if that message starts repeating, 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 that is clearly, you know, sort of like reverse hate speech, you know, because clearly it's saying the other side is doing hate speech, therefore we should invade. So that is war propaganda, very clearly. We do have rules around war propaganda uh, in the sense, I mean, it's a very, war propaganda is bloody hard to define, but there are norms around war propaganda. And so yeah, maybe maybe I mean, norms among states, but are you aware of any of the platforms having any rules around war propaganda? I'm not. Well, they you know they, they do like to say the platforms that they want their platforms to be in line with human rights of, values uh, and things. You yes. norms of human rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So what does that mean? I don't think we ever know what that means. <laughs> you know, well, they usually take that to mean it's like, hey, freedom of expression rules. But actually, like, there's 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 more there, you know, or, or even the OSCE norms. 
Um, again, not all the war propaganda thing. It's a very complicated one. I mean, I don't think America or the UK ever signed up to it, any pledges around it, because they wanted to keep their hands open. But there is a. But again, we are in, at least we're inside something that exists as as a concept. Disinformation doesn't really exist as much of a concept. Disinformation is a really hard one. Um, war propaganda, dehumanizing language, um, all that kind of stuff. At least we can have a conversation about that, and you can have your task force, and you can have your kind of committee of of I don't know the UN rapporteur on freedom of expression, and and you know, and the former and the OSC head of freedom of expression going, okay, what do we mean by war propaganda? Is this that, and therefore should we do something about it? The Latvians have rules around it. The Latvians once banned for a short time. Uh, Russian state TV for, for war propaganda. They were saying the stuff that's on Russian TV is creating a fake casus belli against Ukraine. That doesn't fit in our in our laws. And and the EU didn't say anything. The EU, which is very strict on these, says, says okay, we agree this fits in inside a definition, a legal definition of a legal definition of speech that's beyond the bounds of what can be broadcast. So so that's a conversation we can have. But as you know, and your incredibly educated listeners know, it's a bloody hard one. It's not easy. And it's all in shades of gray. I wonder if we'll be having that conversation, if not over Russia, Ukraine, at some point when when a conflict does necessitate it. Syria was 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 as devastating as anything that we've seen since the Second World War in terms of sort of the mass slaughter of civilians. And right. Right. It's a very weird situation where where we had more evidence than ever before of war crimes filmed in real time of, of really, of kind of like, you know, the mass purposeful double tap bombing of civilians, not kind of the, you know, accidental hits, but purposeful attacks on civilians, stuff that we really thought we'd got beyond. And we had evidence of it in real time on social media. That evidence was attacked on social media as well a lot and wasn't, maybe that should have been protected a lot more. And sort of the, sort of Assad and Russian smear campaigns were very, very, I don't know how effective they were because but they were very, very out there. I suppose that'll be a big thing. It'll be about, yeah, if there's this huge false flag operation to launch a war, like a Gleivitz incident, but uh, on Facebook, what is Facebook's responsibility? That's a huge question. And then as evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity mount, what is the line between that and action happening? You know, shouldn't that say, you know, what, what is the, it's not just the responsibility of the platforms, what's the responsibility of taking action on that as well? <laughs> like, you know, we have the evidence of war crimes. What are you doing about it? I mean, in Syria, didn't do jack shit, um, which was part of, led to a lot of despair, I think. I think we just have to wake up to this new world because, you know, we keep on thinking about the Putin, like our metaphors are so Western. We keep on thinking about what's going on now as something with a, a beginning, a middle, a climax either a war or a de-escalation, and then it ends. Or you use terms like off-ramp, you know, for Putin. And it's not, Putin, it's not about an off-ramp. It's an Escher staircase. It's going to go round and round and escalate and de-escalate and, and on and on and on and on. And for them, it's this is permanent. And I think it's the same for the Chinese. They just see this as a new world. I think we're always looking for the new normal and we'll land somewhere and this is going to be the new balance of power and and these will be the new norms. And we're not. It's just going to be flux and information and perception are critical in that. And that really means thinking about the regulatory piece that we've been talking about. I think that's a huge part of it. You know, what is regulation that, that's going to be 
as meaningful for supporting peace and democracy as possible. But also, like, what's the role of media in this? What's the role of journalists? Do we need a new type of media that, that covers this? And what's the role for public diplomacy and strategic communications or whatever you want to term government communications? I think we just need a lot of new thinking on it and a lot of new you know, strategies and a lot of new new core principles. Yeah. But then I would, I would say that because I work on it. <laughs> well, we'll expect some of that thinking from you. <laughs> so, Peter, thank you very much. My pleasure. I hope that was interesting. That's it for this special episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.